0: to Blade Goodreads, I'm your host, Mark Goddard, and welcome to our first proper recording of 2021. We've got some great guests coming up, but my first guest of the year is uh, is a huge legend in, in the horror writing uh, business, and a gentleman I've met once before, and I believe is one of the nicest people I've, I've met on a book signing that I've done uh, in my time at Waterstones. He is the author of The Amazing Manitou, Jin And the brand new book, which I have in my hands, which I'm bloody well enjoying, which is The Children God Forgot. It is the amazing Graham Aston. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Mark. uh, Yes, I remember meeting you at Waterstones. Uh, Those were the days when we could breathe over people.
0: Um, (laughs) We'd have so many people in one space.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. But uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting back to those days when... uh, you know we could all the all the horror authors can all mingle together like we used to but yeah thank you thank you for your welcome and uh, it's really great to be able to talk about uh, the new book the children that god mm-hmm. forgot and uh, anything else that you want to talk about
0: well basically here at bloody good reads uh, it's quite a laid-back podcast we just have a general chat about um the genre and and yourself and your career which is a lot to talk about you've, you've been uh you've been around for a long time I'm, I'm surprised you still get to stay so fresh with your writing but you do so you, you know somebody's written for so long and so many different genres as well so it's gonna be very interesting to see your fortune your takes on on how the genre has changed and uh, and how your work's changed over the years
1: i think one of the most important things that ever happened to me was uh, getting expelled from school i was uh, I'd, I'd always been interested in uh, in writing i used to write uh, my own books when I was quite young when I was sort of seven or eight years old my parents took me to see uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with uh, the movie with Kirk Douglas uh, fighting a giant squid and I was so impressed that I rushed home and <laughs> I, I wrote my own book with it in a school exercise book about uh, a harpoonist called Hans Lee who fought with a giant squid and I put a cardboard cover on it and did a, a drawing on the cover and I sold that book to my best friend for a penny that was my (laughs) first royalty ever (laughs) but but after that I continued to write books and uh, and I used to go to Croydon Library when I was quite young eight or nine years old and there was a very motherly woman there and I said to her that I liked scary books and Mm. she said um oh she said we've we've got quite a quite a lot of scary books in in the storeroom And she introduced me to some more books by Jules Verne. Jules Verne had written many more books that never appeared on the shelves that were quite scary. One of them about people going down on mine and being frightened to death. Uh, But then she gave me a copy of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Mm. And of course, that, that launched me immediately into writing horror stories, short horror stories. I used to write these short horror stories and read them to my friends at school during the uh, during break time. We used to walk around the quad and uh, I would I would read them these stories and uh, that was really how I started writing horror.
0: Well, it's nice that you get to start quite young as well, so getting kind of into the genre quite young. I, I did when I kind of first dug into horror.
1: How old were you when you first got, got into horror, do you think? See, with me...
0: I always watch, I read a lot of Goosebumps when I was younger. (laughs) So for me, it was more, there's a few kind of like Goosebumps shows and that kind of thing. So I got into it, it must have been around kind of seven, eight, when I kind of started getting into that kind of fiction. And I've always loved it. Uh, Point horror as well was one of the kind of areas that kind of in my teens got me more into like the slasher movie genres as well, (laughs) strangely. Yeah, so
1: I wrote a couple of books for Point Horror actually.
0: Oh, brilliant! Um, Brilliant.
1: Uh, House of Bones was probably the best one, and then mm. I wrote another, another one called Hair Razor, which was about uh, the ghastly things that happen when hairdressers leave piles of hair in their basement.
0: I mean, porn horror is definitely a great way of getting people into horror as well. Kind of my area.
1: What, re- what really happened to me was that um, I was at uh, I was at a boys' school. I was at Whitgift School in Croydon. Mm. It was just a boys' school, but my parents moved down south. And I had to move to um, a mixed school for my sixth form. But, of course, suddenly I found myself with girls. Obviously, girls were a great deal more interesting than Shakespeare or Byron. <laughs> and uh, after two terms, the headmaster came up to me and he said, you know, you're spending no time at all st- studying your English, uh, English A-levels. Uh, you're spending all of your time with Jane And with Charmian and with Valerie, and uh, I think you, (laughs) which I was, and uh, I I think you'd be a good idea if you left. So I was expelled. Oh, (laughs)
0: that's an interesting way again. Expelled, (laughs) don't.
1: After two terms, sixteen years old, and I was thrown out of school. And uh, I got got a job then at uh, Gerard's, the greengrocers, and I'm still actually very good at uh, twisting. A bag of potatoes, you know, twirling a bag of <laughs> potatoes. I can still do that. Quite expert at that. But suddenly the local youth employment office got in touch and they said, uh, there's a job going on the local newspaper, the Crawley Observer. Okay. So I went for an interview there and they took me on and uh, that was that was it. That was brilliant. The training you used to get in those days on a local paper was brilliant because mm. all, of, all of the... Editors and the senior reporters there were sort of retired Fleet Street men and they really knew their stuff Mm. And they taught me how to write a story So it went wham from the first sentence Uh, Mm. How to be clear how to to write a story really well And most importantly I learned how to to interview people and how to Mm. Find out what people really wanted in their lives. It really started when on the first day actually I was sent out on my bike, on my bicycle to interview a woman whose husband had uh, won a cycling trophy. And I cycled out to her house and knocked on the door and this little boy answered and he said, oh, oh mummy, there's a man at the door. You know, here I was 17. I thought, oh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> great. And I went in and I talked to her. Her husband wasn't there, but she talk, told me about his cycling trophy. But just as I was about to leave... She said, um, he beats me. And I said, what? I said, do do, do you want to talk about it? So we went back into the sitting room and she spent a long time, almost an hour telling me how her husband abused her, how he beat her, how uh, every time she cooked anything that he didn't like, he just threw it against the wall. And uh, she'd been to her sister and told her about it, she's been to her parents and told them about it. But um, they just said, well, it's your fault for marrying him. Well, I Mm -hmm. said to her, well, why don't you go and see your doctor? That might be a start. But there was nothing else I could do. But as I cycled away that day, it was was like a Damascene moment. It was like, you know, Saul on the road from Damascus. I suddenly realized Mm -hmm. that I could talk to people about the most intimate and personal things. In their lives, you know, as as a sympathetic stranger, I could mm. find out from from people that everything that, that the, the way they thought, the, the problems they had, how they dealt with them, and and that was mm. really the beginning of, of finding out how to write about people and uh, and and what people really wanted to read about. That was that mm. that day, really made a difference
0: because it's everybody's got a story to tell, and. Yeah, I mean, I, suppose, I can't even imagine how it feels to be just going up to talk about something so kind of jovial to end up then having to be placed in, in, in yeah, just having to, having to, just being, being, I don't know how to really explain that. <laughs> it just must, must be. Well, it, it's sort yeah. of, the, the <laughs> whole, the
1: whole, well, the, the whole thing went on because um, after I'd been, uh, after I did about four years training on the newspaper, um, I tried to get a job in Fleet Street, you know, as a, as a newspaper reporter. Mm. And I went to the Daily Telegraph, and the chap said, you're jolly good. You know, you're you're, you're quite good. You know, but why don't you, why don't you go up north to uh, say uh, a Manchester Evening News for a while and get a bit more experience?" And I thought, "Up north? Are you mad? <laughs> I'm not going mm. up north. You know." And then uh, I went to see my uncle, who actually was the Prophecy Editor of the Evening Standard. And I bought him a beer. And I said, Uncle Bill, um, how about a job on the Evening Standard? He said, oh, he said, uh, yeah, it's quite good. You need a bit more experience. Why don't you go up to the, uh, you know, Liverpool Evening Telegraph or something like that for a bit? <laughs> I thought, oh. So I'm not, I've got. <laughs> I've got very different. I'm not going up north. I'm not doing it.
0: I'm really not.
1: You know, because those those were the mod days. You know, and I was down in London going mm. to all the clubs and stuff like that. But then uh, um, a girlfriend of mine said that she'd seen somebody on on the tube reading a new magazine called Mayfair, mm. which was a kind of rival to um, to Penthouse and Playboy. So I I bought a copy of Mayfair as you do, and uh, I wrote a letter to the editor of Mayfair, saying that I was the most brilliant reporter that ever was and I'd be absolutely amazing on that, you know, working for, for their start, it was and they gave me an interview and I went up mm. and I met the I met the, uh, the publisher of Mayfair in a very tiny office in just off Fleet Street and he said, uh, come and have an interview we went to the RAC club in Pall Mall and we went for a swim in the swimming pool, uh, I had an interview having a swim, you know you know, he asked me, you know, everything about my career and what I'd done and stuff like that. And I told him I'd written a lot of features for the local paper and stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a job. So I became the deputy editor of Mayfair, which I didn't realise at the time <laughs> that, uh, that there was the, the publisher, the editor, me, the deputy editor, a secretary, and the uh, the publisher's dog. And that was the entire staff. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Well, everything else, like the photographs, you know, and the, um, most of the design was all done by outside freelancers.
0: I did practically everything. Jeez, that's, that's could a good way of starting off, though.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was brilliant. I was 21. I even had to write the reader's letters because we didn't get a... <laughs> penthouse did very well with reader's letters. They seemed to get a lot of reader's mm-hmm. letters uh, about various uh, perversions, but we didn't get any, so I had to write them all. <laughs> but um
0: <laughs> is, is, is does that um is that how you kind of maybe started getting into because you did a lot of sex instruction guides Oh, absolutely! <laughs> is that kind of how you yeah. got into doing
1: that yes i did well partly partly that partly those i mean in those days that the sexiest lesson that you would write was uh oh i was going upstairs in a bus and, and this girl was wearing a skirt, and i could see her knickers and that was about the <laughs> the most erotic thing that you could write but um one of the other things I had to do was go to the studios, the photographer's studios, and mm. uh, talk to the girls who were going to be the Mayfair Girl of the Month. Mm. So there I was talking to these girls with no clothes on and saying, uh, you know, why did you... Trying to get some text to go with the pictures. Saying to them, mm-hmm. you know, why, why did you want to appear in the magazine? You know, was it the money, or was it you know? Or do you just think you're pretty? Or oh, my, you know, my my boyfriend thinks I'm my boyfriend thinks I'm lovely, and he says he thinks I ought to be in a magazine. And uh, <laughs> but but then I would I would start talking to them about uh, their personal lives and their sex mm-hmm. lives. And while all the other men who came into the studio would just goggle at their breasts, I would spend a lot of time talking to them about. You know, the relationships they were having, whether they were happy, and how, how things were going for them in in their sex lives, and they would tell mm-hmm. me, you know, just like the you know the woman who told me that her husband beat her, uh, they, they, they would they come out with everything. You only have to ask, and they tell you. Mm-hmm. I, I learned so much from that, and in the end, I went to the publisher of Mayfair, and I said, "Listen." we could do a, a really good monthly article that is, is based on sort of anecdotal it, it, the stories of, the, of these girls and, what, and the sort of sex lives they're having. So I started a monthly feature called Quest, it was. And it, it, it was sort of question and answer, you know, sex advice column based on what these girls had told me. And it was very successful. But then I had, a, I had a big row with the editor of Mayfair. It was really stupid, row, But I'd been there quite a long time, and uh, I quit. I walked out. I said, "You know, mm. I'm not putting up with this anymore." He, I thought he was—he was a nice guy, but he was a bit stuffy. Mm. And uh, I got in the phone box and I rang up the uh, editor of Penthouse, okay. and they—they they gave me a job at the end of the week. So I then became Bloody deputy editor. Of, <laughs> I then became deputy editor <laughs> of Penthouse, and. The, the uh, I know terrible. What a terrible! You can't imagine the stress. <laughs> what a terrible thing! To be on a jet setter <laughs> But uh, the good thing, the good thing about that was that Penthouse then was just starting up in in America. It's it originated mm-hmm. in in England, and uh, but they just start they just launched in America, and so they flew me over to America to help with the development of. Penthouse in America, and when I was there, I met uh, Howard Kaminsky, who was the uh, the editor of um, Warner Paperback Library, as it then was called. Howard Kaminsky is a great guy. In fact, he's actually the cousin of Mel Brooks, whose uh, who, whose who's real name is Mel Kaminsky. Just just give me a bit of uh, irrelevant information. <laughs> but uh, Howard said to me, you know, Graham. He said, "Why don't you?" Write a sex book, you know, like like stuff you used to write before. So he commissioned me to write "How a Woman Loves to Be Loved," but we didn't want to do it under my own name, so we did it under the name of Angel Smith. And mm-hmm. there was a pic- there was a picture of Angel on the cover in a wet t shirt. And uh, it was a book, tremendous seller. It was a and one mm-hmm. of the first really just anecdotal sex books, just describing. Sex, you know, conversationally rather than medically, like most of the books. Mm. Apart from The Joy of Sex, it was one of the first really just anecdotal sex books. And um, it sold really, really well. And I wrote another one. But then Angel started getting fan mail, Mm. a lot of fan mail. And uh, my wife and I were in bed one morning. We got a, a jiffy bag. And in it was a letter saying, Dear Angel, I adore you. I would love to meet you and I'm enclosing a present for you. And inside the jiffy bag was a condom. And uh, and the the writer said, I have rolled this off among myself and rolled it off again as a present for you. If there is a Guinness World World Record for for the speed that a condom can be (laughs) flung across a bedroom, I have that. I have that record. <laughs> and after that, I said, "I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be angel anymore. I'm going to be me," and that's why. <laughs> so that's where I started writing sex books under my own name, mm-hmm. but again, very successfully. I wrote 29 altogether. Uh, the first one was um, "How to Drive Your Man Wild in Bed," which is. Um, enormously really sold million millions of copies really did really well but after maybe three or four years after I was living I'd left Penthouse and I was living comfortably off these sex books. My publisher and I had a different publisher than Clinical Books and, that, and they got in touch and they said unfortunately the market has been flooded with this type of book now. We don't want any more mm. but I had written for my own just for my own amusement the Manitou this horror novel about a Native American spirit who returns from the dead to uh, get his revenge on the pale face. It was based uh, partly on the Buffalo Bill Annual of 1955, which I'd read when I was about 10 years old, and, uh, and on the first pregnancy of my wife, Vishka. So I sent them. It's only taken me about five days to write, but the whole point about it is, and I think the most important And this is what a lot of writers uh, of horror fiction really need to get their heads around. It was about nothing that anybody in the horror market had ever written about before. Mm. It was about the Manessu, a a Native American spirit. And uh, it sold sold about half a million copies in six months. And it was just so unusual. And mm. uh, I, I got tremendous response from the, uh, from the Native American community as well. Mm. Uh, Sitting Bull's granddaughter took us for lunch at the, uh, in New York and, and presented me with a framed portrait of her grandfather, Sitting Bull. Oh, yeah. Uh, she actually took us to the, uh, the Russian tea rooms, which were, I don't know how appropriate that was, but it's a very, very fancy restaurant in New York. Mm. So, so, and so after that, I stopped writing sex books, and uh, and started to write horror books. I wrote uh, the Revenge of the Manitou and the Jin and Tengu and all sorts of and and then also branched out into writing other books like historical sagas and political thrillers mm. and things like that.
0: You know, it's a great place to really kind of segue into um, asking what your first uh, bloody good read is.
1: Well, my first bloody good read actually has to be. Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. I have um, a, a friend, a writer friend, Dawn Dawn Harris, mm. or Dawn G. Harris, as she calls herself, and she gave me a, a, a really old copy of the uh, of the Tales of Mystery and Imagination. But that was that was the book that really started me off being able to write horror and 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 writing very original horror mm. because I don't write about. Um, Zombies or werewolves, or or vampires. I mean, vampires really. A vampire comes and, and bites a, a, a young woman's neck. How, how does how does a grown vampire get enough sustenance out of a um, out of a young woman's carotid artery? And <laughs> uh, why doesn't he make a terrible mess on her pillow? You know. It, it, it just it, it just doesn't work, you know. Yeah. It's all right. I mean, Dracula, Dracula's quite a good book and quite, and quite scary and, mm. and and of course very original at the time. But uh, I, I absolutely avoid vampires. Uh, I've wrote one vampire book, just mm. just to sort of put the record straight. I wrote a vampire book called Descendant, which was about the Strigoi, the the actual original Transylvanian vampires. But mm. this really stuck. Close to the uh, original Romanian legends, these vampires—they don't, don't just give you two little holes in your neck so that you walk around the next day saying, "Oh dear, I seem to have a puncture in my neck." Um, you know, these vampires rip you open and, and, and absolutely take your heart out and, and drink your blood in gallons.
0: Which is how how it should be.
1: <laughs> which exactly, which is you know that that's what they want. And uh, so, and I don't write about werewolves or, or or zombies, you know. It's it's just been done so many times before, and there are so many. And Edgar, this is the whole thing about Edgar Allan Poe. All his stuff is very original and unusual, you know, like all the, all the dwarves he has setting fire to themselves, and and the, the the fall of the House of Usher, and people bricking themselves up in walls. Really, really original, unusual, unusual stuff. And, and written with sort of enormous conviction and which is which is what I've always tried obviously in, in more modern language than he used but uh, mm. that's that's why it's one of my favorite books because he's completely unusual and original and I think that's what horror writers really should be I see so many books again and again and again oh it's the zombies again it's the ghosts again mm. my uh, my publishers head of Zeus, Asked me about a year ago, could could I write a, a haunted house story? I said, Oh, come on, do me a favour, you know. How many, how many haunted house? How many how many haunted house novels are there in the world? But in the end, I sort of I gave in. I said, All right. But I wrote, I did write a haunted house story, but it was it didn't have ghosts in it. And if you read The House of a Hundred Whispers, which came out last last October. Uh, which is my haunted house story, but it's not really anything like the normal, the normal ghost story. You know, mm. you, there are so many. You look around the world and, and, and how many, um, how many mythologies there are, and how many demons and devils and interesting creatures there are in 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 ethnic mythology mm. that you can you can use. I've I've had Tengu, which is a Japanese demon. I've, I've had uh, Lyaks, which are Balinese demons. They're all fascinating. They're, they're frightening. They make great stories. Mm. And uh, I think, right like Edgar Allan Poe and his mystery, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, he was the one who really put me on, on the course of uh, writing novels about, about events that uh, nobody else had ever thought about.
0: I mean, do you do a lot of um, like do do a lot of research while, because obviously you know you must do, like Tengu. Not a lot of people would then maybe go and research that before they start writing a horror novel. But you've gone out and you've kind of looked at all these different mythologies. Is it something that you like to do while kind of oh, thinking? Yes. Of oh, ideas
1: yeah, so yes. important. I mean, I'm writing a book at the moment, uh, which which is about a um,
0: Pakistani
1: demon, basically. Mm. And the research is is enormous, but very interesting. And of course, the, the, the more believable it is, the more frightening it is. If you can, if you can make a, a I mean, I research everything. I research right down to the, the streets, the streets where people live, and, and absolutely it down to every single detail. But the mythologies, some of them, are really scary because that was how people used to explain the, the dread they had in their lives of things like, well, maybe. Uh, like a pandemic, like COVID-19. People would explain that by saying it was it was a devil that was coming amongst them. Mm. Uh, that's how they used to explain things. And, and cop death and uh, cattle death and things like that, they would all be explained by demons and devils. And so there's, there's an enormous wealth of, um, of mythology which you can draw on for a horror story.
0: So you had the, the Manitou. Was you always planning on doing a Harry Erskine series? Or was it kind of just just built up over the years? Because you've done quite a few different series over the years. Yes, because sometimes you you create a character like Harry. Harry's
1: probably the character is more most like me more than you know more, more than any other character. Uh, mm-hmm. I've written about Harry Erskine, and I've written about um, uh, a teacher called Jim Rook, who's got the ability to mm-hmm. be able to see supernatural uh, demons and events like that and i 've also written uh, well a crime series about um, about detective uh, detective superintendent Katie Maguire. I've written eleven books in that series. You develop a character and then you think well you know they could go on and you know' they've, they've become a full character and they could do more. The only problem is people <laughs> people quit getting in touch and say like Harry Erskine from the manager who was the uh, this sort of f- fake sort of charlatan who, was, who finally ends up beating the Native American demon? People keep mm. getting in touch with me and say, Can we have, what's he doing now? And uh, I say, Well, actually, <laughs> uh, I, I rang him up and uh, he said he's in Florida and he's reading fortunes for old ladies, but he doesn't really want to get involved anymore. You know, he's had enough of fighting Native American demons I would lo- I'd love to write more about them but you know there also there are also new ideas to be develop- developed and that's what I'm doing yeah. new characters I'm rushing new books with new with new people in them with new people that I like uh, this the, the new book that I' have just just published next on February the 4th the children that God forgot that's got uh, detective superintendent. Uh, Jamila Patel and uh, Detective Constable uh, Jerry Pardo. And I, those char- I like those characters. I like developing them and I hope they appear in more stories. The only trouble is, um, well, honestly, it's the time. You just don't mm. have the time to do it because a book that takes somebody uh, three days, two or three days to read, takes six months to write. Yeah. And, you know, some people seem to think you can just sit down and it, and, and you're just describing something that really happened. But you're not. You're, mm. you're creating a whole world inside your head, and you have to research everything that goes with it, make it believable, and mm. it's, it's it's an enormous amount of work that goes into it, into a novel.
0: Especially and, if you're doing uh, a series. I mean, like like I mean, like a Katie Maguire series. I mean, I spoke to uh, Mark Billingham a few episodes ago, and. Kind of talk to him about how how do you keep your uh, story going with the same character. I mean, is it how how do you find kind of keeping the run of what the Kate Maguire character's done over the, the series of the books? I mean, do you have like a a compendium of what she's done, or do you kind of just take it as, as it goes? I mean, how, how 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 I mean, how do you write a series like that?
1: Well, it started off um, when my late wife and I uh, lived in Cork. For for a while for a few years, and uh, that's a mad place. Cork, God, man. <laughs> absolutely nuts. A lovely, lovely, lovely city. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, in Dublin, in Dublin, they say they speak the best English in the world. Uh, you know, you remember, you know, uh, Terry Wogan used used to speak that mm. that sort of very precise. It only cocked each other down, like and you can you can understand hardly a word. That from, it, it took six months before we could understand what anybody was talking about. Apart from that, mm. they have a, have a very varied slang, mm. which is quite quite difficult to keep up with. But I was fascinated by it, so I thought I'd love to write a book set here. And I I haven't seen hardly any novels at all that were set in Cork, although it's such a mm. fascinating study with such a long history. And I also wanted to write about uh, the Irish Police Service, the the Garda Síochána, and how and their problems they've been having with um, sexism and you know their their female officers and stuff like that. So all that came together, and I wrote the first book. But having done that, Casey Maguire came alive, and um, so I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll just have to write some more. And also, there's. And this is where having been trained as a reporter comes into it. There are news stories happening all the time, new news stories um, and Katie could actually deal with these with these news problems. There, there were drug problems in Cork, there were homeless problems in Cork and most, most importantly there was the problem of um, the uh, the mother and baby homes, which has been a big scandal in, in Ireland at the moment. And uh, mm. I wrote a novel based on how she dealt with that. So there's, there's but she beca- she became a, 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 a and still is to me a living character. So it wasn't difficult to remember how she developed and how her relationships developed. And uh, and, and you know these people like Katie McGuire and like Harry Erskine and like um, Jim Rook and uh, like these uh, detective. Patel and, uh, and Pardo, they, they become, to you, they become real people. And uh, it, isn't, it isn't difficult to remember their past or, or, or to look forward to what they're going to do next.
0: So what is your second bloody good read?
1: Well, my second book, it's, it's a bit of uh, a bit biased in a way, but it's Diviner, which was the, um, the first novel written by my friend Dawn Harris. It's about a, um, a young girl who has the um, Clarissa who has the ability to, um, uh, well, when she, she looks at people, and uh, for just a moment, when she looks at them, she can see their personality in their face, rather like um, some of the paintings uh, that, that were, that were done, by, um, done by Rubens and people like that. They, they would actually show somebody's personality in their face. But she can see that. If somebody's a, an evil person or an ugly person, as she goes along, just for a moment, their face can become grotesque, and she can understand that and see it. Uh, but at the same time, um, she is she is what they call a diviner. It's a hereditary mm-hmm. ability to be able to do this. But um, it goes back. Uh, the story goes back to um, go, right, right goes back to classical times when um, uh, er, the, the eros the uh, the you know the little spirit. It, it, it was very upset by people who could do this to and he's pursuing her. He's like a, a he's like a very nasty cherub who's pursuing her through her life. But it, it's very very well written. Very much very much involved in Clarissa's character as a young woman. It's probably a book that I, I would recommend to sort of uh, young women in their twenties and things like that because it's it's a lot to do with. Um, the problems that uh, a young woman goes through, but uh, with this supernatural element in it as well. Actually, I sent it to um, uh, Fred Caruso, the film director, who was the producer of uh, Blue Velvet, amongst other amongst other movies, and he absolutely loved it. He said it's um, he said it has such such believability, which for a super, supernatural story is for me is one of the most important things. And uh, Dawn did really well with it, so that was that's my second book. I know I know she's my friend, but uh, <laughs> the, the book isn't. <laughs> yeah, but the, the book's so good that it's. Uh, and she she and I actually have written uh, uh, a couple of horror a couple of horror stories together. Uh, she's actually one of the one of the f- first writers um, that I've been able to to, uh, to work with actually write with because most Mm. of the time I I find co-authoring a bit difficult. Uh, Mm. But she and I, uh, uh, our brains sort of click together. We've written two horror stories, one called Stranglehold, which uh, has been published uh, in America and in uh, Russia and in Poland and in France and all over the place, and Greece. Mm -hmm. And uh, another one called Cutting the Mustard, which was about a, a rather nasty librarian who had a interest uh, interesting young girls that got his comeuppance in the end and that, that's been published uh, in about six or seven countries around the world you know but she, she's doing well with supernatural fiction and it's, it's mm-hmm. nice to be nice to be able to sort of share supernatural thoughts with somebody
0: hi guys it's mark here from the Snake by horror cast snakebitehorror.com, and bloody good reads really hope you enjoy the episode today I'd bring your attention to a brand new supporter of the podcast. Uh, they are abominable books. Uh, it's UK's best horror and thriller fiction book subscription service. They bring the world of horror and thrillers to your door every month for two brilliant prices. It's all the magic of haunted bookshops summer straight to your door each month. basically gives you a brand new horror or thriller title, a luxury snack made here in the UK, a mystery second-hand book possibly haunted book and you also get a of their featured magazines like Black Static, Ghastings and Hellbore, bookmarks, drinks, some surprises or two. It's such a great subscription box and they are an amazing set guys. So head over to abominablebookclub.cratejoy.com. There's even two different tiers of subscriptions you can go for in here. So head on over to either get a full guts or a bare bones edition of the box. Let us know what you think of the box and give those guys support. Get back to the show. It's nice to be able to find someone you you gel with. Definitely, it's always good to see a good uh, collaboration.
1: The only time it happened before was with William Burroughs, you know, the Mm. American author. And uh, he and I uh, were good friends. We would spend hours talking about writing, particularly how to write in a way that involved readers and made them feel that they are really inside the book. You we know, he would was, he was, go on and on and on for hours. He, he would say, I want to be, he said, el hombre invisibile, I want to be the invisible man. When you read my book, mm-hmm. you don't feel that there's an author there. You feel you feel you're inside the story. You can feel the wind on the back of your neck. You can hear the boat whistling in the harbour. You can smell, you can, you know, everything. You can, you know, the the reader should be there, actually in the yeah. story, as though they're, and uh, if I can ever achieve that, you know, to me, that's that's a success. People have said to me, they finished reading a Katie Maguire story and they still felt they were in Ireland, you know. And uh, I said, said, well, was it raining outside, was it? (laughs)
0: um... (laughs) Obviously, doing doing this podcast, I do get to kind of read a little bit more than I used to do um, back when I used to do book reviews. (laughs) But reading um, your new book, it's the first time I've actually wanted to stick reading with it. It is so engrossing. And we... Saying about kind of picturing yourself in a place, I there's a scene in your new book in the sewer systems with the build up of the kind of the, the fat deposits and in in the sewers and and kind of the surprise, which I won't spoil, but there's a, there's a surprise kind of pop up in front of them. You, you feel like you're there, and in a way, in a cheesiest way ever, you, you can smell there, even though you're not there. <laughs> you know, it's it's probably the first book I've actually read for ages, which has actually made me. Want to keep reading, and I'm a very slow reader in general. So, but um, no, I like that. I like that. It's um, your, your writing well, does kind of keep you awesome. in there, which is which is good.
1: You sometimes see these um, things by writers saying that uh, Stephen King, for instance, saying uh, rules of writing. In I've fact, I've done a few on my own UK uh, website, some sort of suggestions, but they're only suggestions rather than rules. Mm so many so many uh, people say oh you mustn't you mustn't do doesn't describe what people are wearing or you you mustn't just you mustn't bother to describe smells or anything like that but you know smells is one of the most important things that you know you walk Mm. into a room what what do you do your first reaction is you smell something and Mm. to describe that is is important also what people are wearing when i look at people one of the first things you look at is is what they're wearing. That's almost the first way you evaluate. That's your first evaluation of what they are and and their background and who they are. Mm. In fact, my old chief reporter on The Crawley Observer, first thing he said to me, first thing you do, he said, look at their shoes. Look at their shoes and that will give you an idea of uh, how much money they've got, uh, what they think of themselves, how fashionable they are! Mm. You can assess somebody almost instantly by their shoes, and then mm. you look at the rest of the clothes. And so, I, so I always, I always take. I don't overdo. I, I don't ever do it. You know, I don't go down to every single bloody button on their waistcoat or anything like that. But at the same time, mm. it's important, uh, I think, for a reader to know what what somebody, how somebody dresses, and just what they look like. And it I mean,
0: keeps and it drags you into the story. And you, yeah. you, the whole point of it is, in a way, a, to read a book is to picture it in your mind. It's, you know, like it's like watching a movie in your mind while, while you're reading. You've got your own image. that's why I kinda of sometimes find kind of adaptations can kind of not gel as well because you know I read Red Dragon um, after watching Science of the Lambs, so you're always in your head going to picture Anthony Hopkins. But if you read the book first, it's not always going to connect. So the good thing about reading triad love is, is you can picture these characters, and you do have a picture of these, of these uh, characters in your mind. And it's, if it's not described properly, you're not going to get a proper picture of the person.
1: Absolutely, and and there are some odd things you can put in, you know, just completely random uh, side details that, that that bring the thing to life, you know. Yeah, you mm. walk into walk into a hospital room, and a guy's sitting there. He's got a half eaten ham sandwich and a and an empty packet of salt and vinegar crisps next to his bed. It tells you something about <laughs> it tells you something about mm. what time of day it is, where you are, what what sort of person this is. I, I just I just like doing that kind of thing. I, mean, if, I know there are writers who do, who do disapprove of it, and there are some writers who are brilliant at. Uh, a, dispensing with almost every detail so there's there's a a mm. few lines in, in a book by Tolstoy I can't remember what it is now where he describes distant mountains and it's like one sentence and I, I, I read this sentence again how did he do that it was mm. so it was so brilliantly written you could just picture these distant mountains and uh, and yet you know he didn't go on about there was snow on them or you know the trees in the distance or anything like that but um you know Mm. that's that's classy writing but um Mm. you know certainly i i think i think writing should be very simple there should never be words in your writing that um that trip the reader up and and suddenly Mm. and suddenly shake them out of their suspension of disbelief at Mm. the same time you know you, you should try and be unusual and interesting
0: so what is your third good read.
1: Well, I'm afraid I don't read very much fiction because no, I'm very, because I'm very critical. And um,
0: we've we, we've had some interesting choices over over the last year. So um, we've had some historical, have some self help. We've got everything <laughs> on this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually, funny probably... enough, Sean, Sean Hudson. I mean, Sean Hudson. We just um, just released his episode. And I think two of his books weren't even horror, but weren't even fiction. He, he, he even said, said, as I will said, he doesn't read much fiction anymore. He kind of just yeah. he likes historical fiction.
1: Well, if, if you're um, if you're a fiction writer, and if you're a critical fiction writer, and if you criticise your own work, mm. it's very difficult to read somebody else's work, you know. And... Uh, mm. And, and you suddenly think, "Oh my god, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have you shouldn't have done that you shouldn't have described it like that. that is really really bad i I used to read uh, I used to like Len Dayton a lot I used to, uh, years ago before I started writing professionally and uh, but uh, I could always tell with a Len Dayton novel when he was, when he got hungry because mm. he would rush the end of a chapter and I could think you, the, you know he <laughs> this, this chap's hungry he's just finishing it off, and he wants to have go and have something to eat." You, you could tell it was ridiculous, and I can tell that now. You know, and, and uh, it's sometimes you know, and there's a clumsy use of words or something like that, and it and it just make for a professional writer. Sadly, it makes you despair. You think, oh, I, I can't, I can't read this because you know, it's it's the idea is good and the writing is 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 well intentioned, but it but it's clumsy. Mm. I'm sorry, I, I would go through this like a like like a tsunami and, and really sort mm-hmm. out the grammar and grammar is so important, I don't care what anybody says. It's uh, it's a book called it's a fantastic, great big fat book by Jerry White, London in the eighteenth century, a great and monstrous thing is the subtitle. And it's an account of uh, London in the eighteenth century. The reason I bought it and the reason I picked it up is because I was writing two crime books based in the 18th century, and uh, one's called Scarlet Widow, and the other's called The Coven. They've they've done quite well, actually. I I think they, you know, I'm hoping that perhaps to write some more. They're very hard work to write. To write about the 18th century is, uh, is, is extremely difficult, and this is why Jerry White's book has been so brilliant, because it contains every single detail that you could possibly want to know about London in the 18th century, particularly the extraordinary crime and prostitution that went on there. Like about about one in 20 of women was a prostitute in those days. But it was the best way for a woman to make a living. But all kinds of other details, like uh, when you're writing a book set in the 18th century, you have to know what food they ate, where they, where they would go for entertainment, they have to know what clothes they wore, all these kind of detail and. Good old Jerry White has, has produced a, a fantastically informative book that really helped me to to write my books about uh, Scarlet Widow and uh, and and the Coven, which the, the Coven is is about a, um, a sex ring in uh, in Covent Garden. But mm. uh, no, that that it's a great book and I would recommend it. And it's very well, very well, very clearly written. It's Really, really good. But as I say, when when you write a book about. Um, about the eighteenth century, and you, you ask yourself questions like, "Did women wear knickers?" And, mm. uh, and the answer is no; they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kn- knickers were only invented. <laughs> knickers were invented much later. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but you have to know things. You know, if you are writing a book about women in mm. the eighteenth century, you have to know these sort of things. How does she get dressed in the morning?
0: And it goes back to the, the point of research as well. So it's, it, it's. Factual, even though you know, which you're using your own work, which is great.
1: Oh, absolutely, and you have to
0: know things like how do people
1: get around, how much did it cost to, uh, you know, to get from one place to another. What were the places of entertainment? Where were the, uh, you know, foxhole gardens and places like that where people went for fun? What do they drink? What do they eat? And uh, books like that are absolutely invaluable when it comes to writing a novel like that because you don't put it all in. You, you just most of it you just it's just mentioned just in passing, but it gives the it gives the story a believability that again makes it frightening, you know, makes it dramatic, and, and makes people really think that you know they're there.
0: So your new book, "The Children God Forgot." Tell us a bit about the new book. It's uh, I nearly didn't
1: write it. It was uh, oh, very couldn't. difficult. Well, it was a very difficult decision to write because it's fundamentally it's about abortion and mm-hmm. uh, obviously that's a, a very difficult subject because there are there are pro lifers who believe that all life is sacred from the moment of conception and there are those mm-hmm. who uh, d- defending the rights of women when they've uh, become pregnant through rape or or they're facing the situation where they they're told that their, their fetus is um, you know, has has severe problems and may not live very long, or may, you know, live a very very difficult life and be uh, and be and live, live, you know, have have a great many problems. So I wanted to write about it, but it's uh, as I say, it's a very very difficult subject to write about. Uh But in the end, I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to do it anyway. I'll just plunge into it and do it. I didn't even know whether it wasn't commissioned unusually because most of my books are commissioned. It wasn't commissioned, but I just I just wrote it anyway. I sent it first to uh, my British publisher's head of Zeus and they said yes they, they thought great you know it's it really really deals with the subject in in a way that's acceptable and although it's scary and although it's weird, uh, it's still something that they they feel that, that that people will be able to engage with and uh, it was I sold this in uh, in France to my French actually Belgian publishers uh, livre uh, Emilie anzio who's the editor there she liked it and I also sold it to rebus in Poland where it's uh, mm. published under a name that I just can't pronounce Um <laughs>
0: But, but today, I'm hey, I'm I'm part Polish. I know I know how hard it is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible thing. You know, I'm, I'm very popular in Poland. But uh, in fact, my uh, Polish publisher's Rebus got in touch with me today to say that uh, the children that God forgot has been um, mm. uh, uh, has been nominated as uh, the best one of the best horror books of 2020. And uh, mm-hmm. we're just waiting for the voting to take place at the end of the um, at the end of the month to find out whether it's the best Polish horror novel of the uh, of 2020. So it's it's done done very well there, despite of course the great problems that they're having in Poland, uh, considering the the uh, situation of abortion, where it's mm-hmm. almost been the, where the very right wing new government has almost banned it completely. You know, it's, it's it's had quite a reception there. So it's you know it comes out when it comes out in the UK. We'll just see, have to see how people respond to it. It's as I say, it's a book. Does it? Was, it was difficult to write, but then I thought in the end, I've got to write this. I can't I can't ignore this subject. I've got I've got mm. a view on it, and other people have got views on it. As I say, the pro-lifers and those who uh, and those who feel quite the opposite, and that. It's a woman's in you know, a woman's body, and her right to to make the decision of whether an abortion should take place or not. Uh, I just hope that people, you know, it will, will help some people make their own minds up of what they think about it. You know, it's a scary book as well. I hope.
0: Mm. Did you find it scary? I'm know. loving it. I'm I'm loving yeah. it so far. I mean, I'm I'm about halfway through. I'm loving it so far. Okay. The um, the, 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 there's obviously there's a without spoiling too much, it's at the start of the book, but the um scene. In hospital when they are going to take the baby out it's so creepy and well well described it just a little bit of a shiver down the spine with the kind of the the fingers on the tentacles and yeah it's brilliant book i'm I'm absolutely loved it so far um it's been a while since i've actually really sat and enjoyed a book like this properly properly um, oh, without you know, without reviewer eyes on as well you said she just as a as a reader for a change <laughs> which, <laughs> well, which, is, again, which is which is which is, which is i don't get to be often <laughs> <laughs> well again you know i
1: had to do all the research about uh, about cesarean sections and all stuff like that and i mm. uh, talked i talked to some, some gynecologists about uh, how these things how the, so so it's uh, despite the fact being weirdly supernatural this is uh, you know the medical side is very realistic.
0: So, what are you working on next?
1: I'm working on a book called uh, "The Shadow People." It's it's based it's it's based on homeless people, mm. but it's uh, but it goes it goes a little bit further than that. It's another it's another supernatural book, and it's another book that features um, Detective Superintendent Patel and uh, Detective Constable Pardo. Uh, it, it, it's it's about homeless people it's also got a historical background to it which I, I don't think I'm going to reveal at the moment because it's um, it's uh, not 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 terribly historical not 18th century but uh, something mm. that affects uh, something that has affected lives these days I've tried to get both um, a kind of imaginary threat uh, but a realistic threat as well, and, and also dealing with the problems that homeless people have to deal with. So um, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. I, I do like to have, um, you know, realistic contemporary themes in the book, you know, that, that really bring it to life. And uh, yeah, that's it. Should be coming out in December, as far as I know.
0: I'm looking forward to that one, especially if it's got the same characters in your new book as well. So I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward to that I'm, one well. I'm looking forward to it as well. <laughs> I've got to finish it. <laughs> well, I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> it's been such a, such a lovely chat as well, but I'm going to have to yeah, wind up the podcast. Annoyingly. I really hate it. Um, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for listening. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure we, well, it'd be nice to come on again and uh, tell you how things are going
0: and a huge thank you to Graham Huston for joining us this week on the podcast I uh, hope you guys out there have enjoyed listening to this episode, I've really enjoyed chatting to Graham and uh, yeah, I hope you've, you've got some good stories out of this as well uh, his new book The Children God Forgot is available now, out in hardback and I believe possibly in Kindle as well um, in the UK, do so go and check it out uh, in the US, check your, check your Amazon listings. I'm sure it's out over there as well um, you can catch me over on Instagram at Bloody Reads, on Twitter at Bloody Reads, and also over on Facebook if you type in Bloody Reads in the group. Come join the group, have a chat with us, and uh, we'd love to have you over there. As, as always, I've been your host Mark Goddard,
1: and I'll see you.